0: In the talk this evening, I would like to address to some degree one of the more enduring confusions of the spiritual life. One way of perhaps presenting this confusion is in the contradiction that seems to exist at times between our questions of whether we should work on things Or whether we should simply let them go. Another way of looking at that confusion is at times the feeling that we should really, in this path, you know, simply get on the enlightenment train, um, wholeheartedly dedicated to liberation, or the seeming contradiction in times when we feel, well, we should really improve ourselves and hope that enlightenment is going to follow in the footsteps of that improvement. Both of these versions, or both of these approaches, very much exist within the spiritual life. One version, or one approach to the spiritual journey, is an encouragement and inspiration to focus very exclusively, very wholeheartedly upon the most profound wisdom, upon enlightenment and liberation. It is a kind of all-or-nothing approach where we are encouraged to allow nothing whatsoever to distract us from our goal. It's a go-for-it approach. And we hear the stories, true stories, that over the years, countless people have awakened, actually, to the end of suffering, to the end of limitation, have awakened to a deep and profound peace and happiness and truly a perfection of wisdom. And in that, have retired actually retired from the cycle, the endless cycle of becoming and sorrow. We have all heard these stories, seen the pictures of these people, heard their histories and their journeys and their paths recounted many times. We are often remarkably inspired by their example and by their model. Sometimes we envy them. Sometimes we are puzzled, wondering how did they do it. Suddenly it is clear that all of this, all spiritual mythology, all of these spiritual stories and examples, makes a very profound impact upon our consciousness. How can we turn away from the invitation that is offered to be awake, to be free. How can we turn away from their example? In the face of the kind of clarity of wisdom that can come from so many spiritual teachers, it is exceedingly hard to mistrust them. What they say seems so clear and true within our own experience. And it's hard to believe that all of these mystics, in different traditions, in different centuries, are colluding in, some, in perpetuating some kind of hoax about enlightenment. <laughs> the possibility of profound wisdom is something that really touches us in very deep ways. The possibility of enduring happiness, of compassion, of being able to see the cosmic play of life unfold without being entangled or ensnared. All of this is a hard invitation to turn away from. And we aspire to, we find ourselves aspiring to in our own journeys to an understanding, looking for an understanding, seeking for an understanding of what it means to be awake, what it means to be free. And in that aspiration that is inspired, sometimes it, it seems rather important to put aside more secondary concerns and worries. In the light of the possibility of awakening, we are encouraged in this approach not to be distracted by our concerns about our personalities or our social lives or our emotional lives. We are encouraged not to be overly concerned with our kind of growth as a human being or how well-adjusted we are to living in the world. We are encouraged not to be distracted by our stories with all their drama and all their content not even to be concerned necessarily with how we live our lives in this world, not to be distracted by thoughts about the past, by wondering what is the cause of our conditioning, what is the cause of our patterns. In a way, in this approach, we are encouraged really to put all of this kind of, Personal concerns somewhat on on hold, to press the pause button. Because in a way, in the light of awakening or the light of freedom or liberation, these seem to be somewhat limited objectives, not necessarily on the agenda of enlightenment. Certainly, I know in my practice in the East with many teachers I sat with, you know, would never have considered going to them and saying, you know, well, what shall I do with, with greed? You know, because they, well, they would have said, just go sit, quite frankly. You know, I mean, that, that would have been the kind of standard answer. That's not what we were there for. And sometimes I think there's an unspoken assumption, perhaps, that liberation or awakening is going to take care of all our problems. That all of our lives with our inner dynamics and relationships, our psychological and emotional knots are somehow going to be transformed through the power of awakening. So the path, actually, in this particular approach to the spiritual life is really one of cultivating a kind of unflinching non-attachment, an unflinching renunciation, a total dedication to letting go, a true single-pointedness. One teacher described the teaching of meditation and the practice of meditation in... In the, just a very few words, sit down and let go. <laughs> now, I think that for most of us, there are moments in our own journeys where actually we feel very fascinated by, by the the simplicity, the the kind of single pointedness, the. The sort of purity of this presentation of the spiritual journey. And of course we have all the stories of the teachers and the people who have made it, who got there, who got it. And it is not only that, we are also very often inspired in our paths by moments within our own experience where we have glimpses actually. Our great stillness, our great sensitivity, A single moment of profound peace has a pretty remarkable impact, a moment of true happiness. These moments in our lives and in our own practice, really, they kind of whet our appetite, is what they do. We think, you know, usually just a moment later, I would like some more of that. You know, I would like a little, a few more moments like those. I would like a little bit more peace, more happiness, more stillness. And in those moments, I think, when there is some sense of opening, really everything seems possible. Everything seems possible. Nothing seems impossible. And in that sense of possibility, I think we are at times very glad to kind of discard our our other concerns. You know, sometimes it's even hard to remember what we were so obsessed about the hour before. You know, we feel happy to discard, in a way, our concerns about confusion in our lives or identities or relationships. Discard them in order to follow this way of profound insight and grace now this approach is one approach to the spiritual path that we encounter but it is certainly not the only one at times we are very much in touch with that kind of vision and at times in our own practice we are often in touch with a different kind of approach Now, I think we need to take into consideration that as Westerners, we do come from a very different cultural background than Asians in this path. And one of the kind of outstanding characteristics of our culture clearly is this emphasis that is placed upon personal growth and improvement. The further west you go here, the more noticeable that is. (laughs) We have a very strong <laughs> <laughs> when she comes to California, that's our opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> we have a very strong conditioning that points us endlessly to the need for personal perfection, to seek for health. To seek, not only for health, but perfect health. To seek to be socially, emotionally, psychologically well-adjusted. You know, good human beings out there in the world doing good things. We are educated in a way to believe that this is some measure of our worthiness and our success as a human being, we all are in touch with this kind of conditioning about being good, about being perfect that gets carried away sometimes. In the light of this conditioning, it is sometimes very difficult to sustain a very undiluted, very single-pointed approach to our own spiritual journey. You know, enlightenment is great, but when our lives are a mess, our relationships are breaking down, our world is in a state of chaos, when we see ourselves surrounded by confusion or filled with unhappiness, enlightenment seems a long, long way away. And at times, although it seems like a great idea, it also seems, I think often, that it's a great idea that needs to be postponed. (laughs) Or else it's a good idea for somebody else. (laughs) And it is very true that it is hard to get excited about liberation in the face of tackiness in our lives. You know, I mean, (laughs) we accept, we accept that, yes, there are mystics in the world, but then we probably find ourselves wondering, you know, I mean, did they ever have to worry about paying an electricity bill? You know, did they ever have to be around people they didn't like? You know, did they never have any problems with authority? Did they never experience alienation? Or is this something that doesn't happen to mystics? You know, that they never encounter confusion or or distance. And I think, you know, confusion has, and unhappiness actually has a pretty profound impact upon us. Liberation sounds good in the midst of it, but more predominantly, I think, we are often in touch with the feeling that actually our personal well-being, our personal peace, our personal happiness, our personal clarity is actually the real issue we need to be concerned with, that we need to know and to learn how to forgive, how to live our lives with less pain how to live our lives with greater ease and happiness. I think, you know, to be, if we were to be honest, these concerns actually feel to be imminently much more fascinating and attractive than retiring into some place of enlightened bliss. Now, in the light of pain, in the light of confusion, Supported by our conditioning, I think we are often tempted and inclined perhaps to accept more, well, limited is one way, different objectives and different agendas in our, in our journey. We are actually more interested perhaps in objectives that we feel are going to make a difference in our lives right now because that's what we're faced with, our lives right now. We know that we can't put confusion and unhappiness on hold. It's easier to put enlightenment on hold. (laughs) That seems to be the kind of challenge that we are faced with. So often our path and our approach changes in response to our own primary motivations and intentions. We do accept very well, of course, that non-attachment, that renunciation, that understanding emptiness, that all of these have a very important place in our lives. But somehow, we find ourselves getting more interested in understanding our stories, in understanding our inner dynamics, in achieving more calm, more peace, in figuring out a way to live with more skillfulness more wisdom more clarity on a moment to moment level this doesn't mean it's necessarily a renunciation of the possibility of awakening or enlightenment but more i think we see that we are working towards enlightenment by working on ourselves that by slowly Unconsciously consciously working on ourselves, penetrating our stories and confusions, penetrating our psychological and emotional problems, that in this way we are moving towards liberation. Now I would like to mention once more in this situation the degree to which Work is used as a replacement for the word meditation. How often we speak about working on something, working with something, working on ourselves. This work, 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 work. Um, You know, sometimes I have images of people coming into the meditation room dressed in overalls, carrying shovels and pickaxes and drills, you know, that we're here to do a job, we're here to work. I think sometimes we forget the sort of the graciousness of just being here because we are very single pointed upon our objectives. I think sometimes we're also encouraged, I think, not to do this kind of work because we're also not necessarily very inspired and heartened by the examples of some other saints and mystics who have apparently become very enlightened and yet whose lives are actually a mess. We also, I think, see in the meditation retreat and also in our lives, the way in which our stories and our histories and our conditioning seem to get in the way. How often they seem to get in the way of clarity and peace and stillness. And so I think we begin to feel or conceive that personal development and improvement and personal change is a way of opening the door to a perfect skillfulness in the art of being and the art of understanding, a way of being through working on ourselves where we will be able to live in a way where there's no more anxiety, no more confusion, no more alienation, but rather that a state of spaciousness, a state of grace, a state of great spirituality, will follow in the footsteps of working on ourselves. And when I mentioned this to Anna at Tea Time, she asked, well, have you ever met anybody who's perfect? Actually, no. I have never met anybody who's perfect. I actually can't even imagine what it would be like to have a perfect personality and a perfect body and a perfect mind. I don't think, you know, maybe, but I I have never encountered it. Now, when we're busy working, as we are often very busy working, and this is not a denial of effort, by the way. Obviously, clearly, what we do here is is quite demanding of effort and energy and and dedication. But there's other kind of working in the light of agendas and personal agendas and improvement. I think sometimes when we are busy working, we do have moments where we wonder, am I really doing it right? Am I really doing all this stuff right? Because we see actually through our experience the the apparent endlessness to working. You know, this is a long, Whole, a long road to hope. You know, it seems to re- go into infinity. Where no matter how much we resolve, apparently, we have the capacity to have something else to resolve. <laughs> and no matter how many layers we peel, there always seems to be yet another layer to go. And no matter how many things we seem to have really understood, there always seems to be something yet more to understand about ourselves. We seem to be very complex human beings. Greed is followed by anger. Anger is followed by judgment. Judgment is followed by something else. There's a sense of endlessness in the possibility of doing. And I think instead sometimes of feeling necessarily that there is great stillness, we are presented with another job. And there are many times I think when we do ask some very que- very valid questions about wondering whether we have actually got a little bit sidetracked. Because there seems so much to do and it seems to be so hard to stop doing. You know, there seems to be a lot of comfort in doing Now, there is some satisfaction we have to appreciate that we gain through doing. And there are some very valid effects that are the outcome of paying some very clear and conscious intention to how we live our lives and to the dynamic of our inner being. And I certainly would never want to dismiss that. You know, so much of meditation is about being conscious, about being conscious of who we are and all that makes us who we are. Part of meditation is healing, coming to a place of balance and acceptance within ourselves. Part of meditation is forgiveness, nurturing the capacity for that forgiveness and softness towards our own being. Part of our meditation is balance, not being so consumed by conclusions and assumptions And all of this obviously takes a lot of attention. It takes a lot of attention, and it's what being conscious is all about. And that is meditation. And we can see, actually, real changes that happen through that attention. We can actually see them. We can actually give that attention go out in our lives and live in a way in which we are less burdened by anxiety and confusion, where there is greater sensitivity and more happiness. We actually can measure the effects of being conscious. It is also true, though. There is also that other part where we can become so almost addicted to doing and to feel that we are always going somewhere, on a long, endless path of going somewhere. And it's difficult to find reassurance in non-doing, basically. It's difficult to find reassurance in stillness, because there's really no measure that we can use to evaluate insight, to evaluate deepening, to evaluate unfoldment inwardly. This is so unpredictable and there's no yardstick that we can call upon. Also the very, the very thoughts that we have about liberation are puzzling to us. You know, if it is not somewhere else, if freedom is not somewhere else, then it must be here and it must be right now and you can you can only measure steps from here to somewhere else you can't really measure movement from here to here and this is also a little puzzling for us at times so there are these two approaches let go work on yourself dedicate yourself to liberation improve yourself. The times seem very confusing. Should we relentlessly bypass ourselves in the quest for enlightenment, trusting that the details of our lives we will take care of later? You know, should we simply move house? Or should we put our house in order first, before we move house? Now according to the stories, spiritual stories, this confusion is nothing new. This has always been around, a knot that's been kicked around like a football on a field. And one way in which this confusion has been manifested very clearly is in the story of Hui Ning, who was a Chinese, Chinese patriarch master who started out as a very poor peasant, sent to the monastery, I think basically because his family couldn't feed him, was accepted into the monastery, went to work in the kitchen, cleaning the rice, washing the dishes. And it came at a time, to be a time in the monastery when the, the teacher was nearing the end of his life and looking for a successor, looking for a Dharma heir. And so in order to find a successor, the teacher decided to pose a question to the monks. And he asked the, the monks, there were no nuns there, by the way, just I'm not overlooking this. He asked the nun- monks to, to write upon the wall of the, the monastery a, a poem that would illustrate their understanding. And whoever illustrated the clearest wisdom would get the job, more or less. So there was one very ancient monk who'd been there a very, very long time. And everybody already figured, you know, it was a foregone conclusion. This fellow was clearly going to get it. So he wrote upon the monastery wall a poem which said, The body is a Bodhi tree, the mind a mirror bright. Carefully we polish them hour by hour and let no dust alight. Sounded pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) So then Hui Neng, seeing this, thought, well, he would offer his own understanding. And he wrote upon the wall of the monastery, There is no Bodhi tree, nor is there mirror bright. Buddha nature shines clear and pure, so where can dust alight? They are two clearly polarized, seemingly polarized approaches that I think it is helpful to look at in the context of our own experience. Repeatedly in our lives and in the spiritual life, we hear the words peace, compassion, depth, understanding, realization, truth. In a way, these words symbolize what this journey is all about. And we respond to them. There is something that responds to those words in a very powerful way. They inspire us. They inspire us to explore the depth of our own consciousness, our own being. They are the words which actually give meaning to the effort, to the time, and to the patience that we give to this practice. There's also no denying the fact that when we sit and meet ourselves in this moment, what we often meet are moments that are filled with endless stories and mind states and memories and resistances and moments of holding. We experience often in in our days here a flow of activity, a flow of inner activity, which seems to have the power to capture us and to superimpose itself on the present moment. And it does seem that that power of this inner activity somehow has the capacity to deny that which we seek. It seems to have the capacity at times to deny the clarity and the openness and the compassion and the understanding that we really look for. And we keep hearing these suggestions and encouragement of, don't be caught in your stories. Don't be caught in your content. Don't be dwelling upon the dramas and the conclusions and the assumptions that arise. We keep suggesting to you, you know, perhaps instead, Be aware of the spaciousness in which they arise. Be aware of the process of all of that enfoldment rather than the content. Be aware of the process of holding and resistance. Being aware of the process of construction and dwelling. Being aware of the process through which we create identities and belief systems and, and images that we then feel limited by. And through the insight into this process, there will come the letting go, the opening, the understanding, the awakening to what is false, and the awakening to what is true. And this actually is, is not so easy to do. <laughs> You've experienced it, it's not that easy. Um, sometimes we even wonder should we be doing that you know sometimes we doubt it because you know it seems at times that the contents of our experience are so complex and so charged and so repetitive we really kind of wonder at times well you know is spaciousness going to fix all that you know or is just giving attention to the process of all of this somehow going to end the suffering that arises with us is it somehow just magically going to untangle the knots of our stories and the knots of our conditioning it is true that in meditation and in life experience the contents of experience often plays a very dominant if not an overwhelming role Our minds have an awesome capacity to produce content. Awesome capacity. And at times we have also, it is also true, I think, a very ambivalent relationship to that content. mean, sometimes we feel a lot of aversion for the contents of our experience that we keep going through over and over and over again. Sometimes we feel aversion because it seems so relentless, because at times we seem deafened by it, and sometimes we feel aversion for content simply because it's so boring. <laughs> uh, how many really new thoughts did you have today? You know, we don't often have new thoughts, Susanna. I already talked about most of them. You know, we, we already know. It's, it's like watching a movie. You know, a thousand times, and, and you know the ending with the opening scene. You know, it's, it's kind of hard to get excited about it, you know. But it's also true that at times content can be really fascinating. Isn't it true? There's a kind of magnetic pull there. It can be really interesting at times. First of all, because it, it gives us such an opportunity to do things and, and to be busy. And in a way, it satisfies our desire to control, you know. We can come in here and think, you know, just think, you know. We don't have to be aware of anything else, just think. You know, how many hours have we spent here just thinking, you know. I mean, when we're just doing that, you know, it's not all that demanding, actually. It's a lot less demanding than paying attention to other things, you know. It seems it's much easier to think. Also. We have to consider the flexibility of the content that we experience. You know, we can play with it. We can feature in our stories. (laughs) You know, it's it's a pretty anonymous situation here, but somewhere we're a star. (laughs) You know, here in in this content, we are the star, the hero and the heroine. Sometimes we're very fascinated by the, the pleasure of our memories and our fantasies. You know, anything can happen. We can create a world for ourselves. But then, even no matter how delightful our, we are with all of this play within the mind, that sometimes it dawns upon us, actually, that we are inhabiting a very limited and constructed world, which has some very noticeable deficiencies. And in that mind-created world, you know, clarity and peace and insight and connectedness with actuality often really do number amongst those deficiencies. And yet it seems we're addicted because underlying our fascination with content is a certain belief, I think that if we think enough, we will come to the end of thought. (laughs) Or that if we think enough, we're going to get the answer. We're going to get the solution. You know, once somebody said to me on retreat, you know, you know, I'm tired of all this, you know, taking my attention away from thinking, it needs to be there, I'm going to think until thinking runs out. Needless to say, <laughs> 10 days later, there still seemed to be a whole lot to think about. <laughs> seemed to have hardly started even. Sometimes we say that about a lot of things, you know, well, if I'm dull, if I'm just dull long enough, dullness is going to run out, you know, or if I'm spacey, if I'm just spacey long enough, eventually sp- I'm going to run out of spaciness. This may not be the truth. There are a number of things we can say about content. One of them is that we can be assured of its endlessness. We can guarantee that our minds and our lives are always going to deliver us something else to obsess about and something else to think about. And actually the preoccupation with content in itself breeds more content. We can also say, I think, that our relationship to content is rarely neutral, because if it was neutral, content would end. Instead, our relationship sometimes is an adversarial relationship. Sometimes it's a relationship of clinging and holding. Sometimes we treat the contents of our experience as something that we want to get rid of, something that we want to end. They're opponents to us because they're unpleasant, or because they threaten us in some way. And sometimes we would like the content to hang around. Because it flatters us in some way, we would like to prolong it. Resistance and holding. In either of these relationships, we are tied to the content of our minds, of our experience. And that means also that we are tied to praise and to blame highs and to lows, to happiness and to depression, to contentment and to striving. These dichotomies are always the byproduct of our fascination with content. Does it mean that it's worthless? No, it doesn't mean that all content is worthless. It doesn't mean that we should attempt to discard, to deny, to overcome the contents of our minds. Sometimes people tell me they have transcended their minds, or they have transcended their personalities, or they have transcended their bodies, or they have even transcended the world. Sometimes I feel a little bit suspicious. (laughs) And one word I would say, you know, maybe it's so, but really, if you've gone on this spiritual vacation, you ought to know what your mind and body and personality is doing in your absence, because it can get you into a lot of trouble. Sometimes I wonder, where else are we going to learn except from what's here right now? This is where we experience the possibilities of letting go, of understanding, of forgiveness. You know, it is possible, actually, to have really terrific meditation experiences. You know, where you transcend lots of things, you know, and, and you know, really somewhere else. But it's also possible to return to find basic personality structures untouched by that transcendence. And you come home to a house full of neurosis <laughs> and habits that have sort of somehow remained untouched by this transcendence. And I think, you know, there is really this need for this weaving together of insight and application. You know, profound experiences somehow must liberate. They must really transform our lives. Insight, very deep insight, somehow must touch who we are, how we see ourselves, and how we live our lives. There must be some transformation. I mean, content is not irrelevant because it reveals to us our stories. It's our mirror, as we've spoken about. It is our mirror that shows us where there's holding and resistance, shows where there's dwelling, where there's need for insight, Con- content teaches us and reveals to us where there is a need to let go and where there is a need to nurture, what brings joy and what brings sorrow, what we need to truly value if we value clarity and understanding and peace. Content doesn't actually offer us this learning when we are tied to resistance and holding. There is a great need, I think, to renounce our craving for solutions and answers that we seek through content, because this is the renunciation of preoccupation. And the renunciation that actually allows us to learn through what is revealed to us, including the contents of our minds. Now the relationship to content is actually very significant in nurturing insight, in understanding awareness. We need a very light touch in this practice. We need a very light touch to really understand the depth of awareness that awareness is. We really need to understand what it means just to see. To be for or against fuels a perpetuation of division. We need clear comprehension. Milarepa once said, a wandering thought is the essence of wisdom. We need to be able to renounce our distinctions. It is not that it is a good thought or a bad thought. It is not that it is me or not me. It is not that it is the presence or the absence even of a thought. Awareness is understanding what it means to be at home in seeing, content actually reflects our capacity for our awareness. It is just like seeing a dewdrop in the morning on the grass and how that dew drop actually reflects the brightness of the sun. It is like seeing the t- branches and the leaves of the tree swaying and how that tree is actually reflecting the wind. So, too, this unfolding dance within our lives and within ourselves reflects our profound capacity for awareness, and reflects the brightness of awareness, which both illuminates us and through which awareness is revealed. There is nothing that is separate from awareness. All things serve to reveal the possibilities and the brightness of the awareness that is within our consciousness. It is a brightness that embraces all content. It's not a problem. We don't need to untangle it. In the brightness of that awareness, insight is actually organic. We are not blinded nor deafened by clinging to see content to see the process of content, to see that entire dance held in the light of awareness. We see the way constructions are formed through dwelling, adversaries through resistance, openness through letting go, sensitivity through allowing, the end of limitation born of non-dwelling. there is no need to transcend anything in awareness, because all things simply reveal that brightness, that radiance that is already there, and that accommodates all things within us. Awareness is not a state to struggle for, it is present, it is here, it is within us. Lightly we nurture non-dwelling, lightly we give attentiveness. So that we are guided we are actually guided by our own wisdom which banishes nothing and holds on to nothing i'd like to just end with a few lines that the buddha once said he said mere suffering is but no sufferer is found the deeds are but no doer of the deeds is there the path is but no traveler upon it is seen. Nirvana is, but not the person who enters it. May all beings rest in awareness. May all beings deepen in wisdom. May all beings live with compassion we have just a couple of minutes quietly together